Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend. A podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde confesses she can't tear her eyes away from the Gwyneth Paltrow trial. From Camden Council care worker to trailblazing icon, we revisit an interview with Paul O'Grady from 2017. And Zoe Williams laments the revival of the Men Are Trash narrative. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, a starstruck lawyer, a neutrals-clad wellness guru. Not since Rooney vs. Vardy has a courtroom drama been so bizarrely compelling. But, notes Marina Hyde, the Gwyneth Paltrow trial has to be the lowest-stakes court battle of all time. Read by Serena Mantegi. To Park City, Utah. Currently seen of one of the great pleasures of modern life a court battle, that you'd be relaxed for either side to lose. Yes, it's the Gwyneth Paltrow Ski Massacre trial. Take your seats for a preposterously camp battle between a well-to-do retired optometrist who said the high priestess of fanny steaming skied into him and her vagesty herself who says he skied into her. Why is this not happening at The Hague? Sorry, but no sense of occasion. Before we go any further, I want to make a deeply serious point. Something happened that day. Something happened on that mountain in that luxury ski resort up there in God's Cathedral. And, like anyone who has watched either the plaintiff or the defendant on the stand at any length, I literally could not care less what it was. I mean... This is as low stakes as it gets. Asked about what had been taken from her by the events on the Deer Valley slopes, Paltrow delivered the sociopathically straight-to-meme line, Well, I lost half a day of skiing. Bear in mind this is a woman who claims that water has feelings. For his part, Terry Sanderson's lawyer put things into perspective by declaring, 
After the crash, he's no longer charming. We'll come on to the charmicidal maniac slash wronged wellness guru in a moment. First, a reminder that Mr. Sanderson is seeking $300,000 in damages, which, to us country mice on this side of the Atlantic, feels a little eye-catching. Of course, we only have an outsider's grasp of the Baroque flourishes of the US legal system. But it is surely our understanding that any citizen of that great nation making some kind of personal injury claim understands that this is America and asks for at least $30 million just as a point of principle. Then again, having watched him, I think I'm on the verge of understanding why Mr. Sanderson values his lost charm at a mere $300,000. In reality, so well-adjusted is our early 21st century system of social capital that there are few better ways to accrue charm than from starring in the Gwyneth Paltrow ski trial. This seems to have been something once dimly grasped by Mr. Sanderson, who emailed his daughters in the immediate wake of the accident with the possibly unfortunate subject line, I'm famous, at what cost? As for whether the collision put him off skiing ever again, on Monday he revealed he tried not to look back, but eventually overrode himself and took several skiing trips, albeit dressed in, slightly traumatised pause, this ungodly-looking red fluorescent outfit that I bought. Stakes, dear boy. Stakes. Arguably, Terry's most compelling proof that he suffered a brain injury is his choice of lawyer, who makes Lionel Hutz look like Cicero. At one point in the proceedings, this Kristen Van Orman almost squealed, I am so jealous. I have to wear four-inch heels just to make it to five foot five. They're very nice, lied Gwyneth. You're not trained in accident reconstruction, ran another gambit. Me? asked Gwyneth. No. Neither am I, chortled Kristen. A few years ago, Gwyneth stopped acting to focus on her lifestyle brand, Goop and I would be overjoyed if she now stopped that to focus on starring in court cases, serving up this level of farm-to-table hilarity. Private security for my client wanted to bring in treats for the bailiffs for how helpful they've been, announced her lawyer one morning. So I wanted to do that transparently and see if there are any objections. That basic bitch Lady Justice apparently says Madam can't treat Basket her way out of this one. But you can't keep a good wellness entrepreneur down. Every aesthetically challenging day in that hideous orange Utah legal facility, Gwyneth has swept in wearing Category 5 neutrals, hopefully drawn from her own brand's courtroom casuals line. Though all Gwyneth's garments are made from the neck hairs of these really incredible Himalayan goats, to whose sheddings a normie like you could never have access, do be reassured they will be lovingly ripped off in never-pill nylon and available later this year as Halloween costumes. Just as Goop is a place where food is never eaten, but grabbed or reached for, 
So it is that one of the best things Gwyneth's website can say about any outfit is that it takes you effortlessly from one part of your day to another. In this case, from pursing your lips in court to making that evening's waiter give you the resume and achievements of every ingredient in the biodynamic salad before pursing your lips once more and hissing, No thank you, I'll just have broth. As for any lessons that might be drawn from this appallingly entertaining courtroom dramedy, I am afraid I can only return to an oldie but a goodie. Never litigate. Never litigate unless you absolutely positively have to. And as far as anyone can see, Mr Sanderson didn't have to. We already know what Gwyneth Paltrow's like. But we now know, from Terry's own testimony, that he ordered his former girlfriend to leave him after he began his legal journey as, I knew she didn't buy into it. My interaction with my family has been difficult, he reflected on Monday. Something is wrong with my essence and what I bring to the table with them. Earlier, one of his daughters had testified that he was obsessed with the trial, while another deposition declared he was emotionally abusive and quick to anger before the 2016 collision. Whatever the thread count of this dirty linen, is it worth it? For anyone other than the countless mind-boggled spectators, the answer can only be no. That was Did Gwyneth Paltrow Ski Into a Retired Optometrist? I Couldn't Care Less, But the Farce is Unmissable by Marina Hyde Read by Serena Manteghi Next Famously outspoken, BAFTA-winning talk show host, comedian, broadcaster, actor, writer and drag show compere, Paul O'Grady's death has left a huge hole in the entertainment industry. Back in 2017, Eva Wiseman sat down with the icon to discuss love, loss and loathing the Tories. Read by Mark Elstob. Paul O'Grady took the long way back from his cousin's funeral to see the house where he grew up. At home in Kent, he keeps a metaphorical suitcase under the bed. I think those are the ones with wheels, just in case his showbiz bubble pops and he has to run back to Birkenhead, to this damp little house built on a former quarry where his auntie would take a bucket upstairs for a whore's wash and they had an outside toilet until he was nine. A woman approached as he got out of the car and said, Aren't you Paul O'Grady? And he looked up at the house and he said, I used to be. I could happily have sat in this hotel room and listened to O'Grady talk till midnight. The window cracked open onto central London in case he needed another fag. He's sixty-one, elegant in a slim blazer, voice like broken biscuits, and currently on his fifth life. I count them. The youngest child in a working-class family, he left school at sixteen, and following a brief affair, had a daughter a year later. That's one. After three years working at a home for disabled and abused children, he moved to London, working for Camden Council as a peripatetic care officer by day, life too, and on the stage in drag at night. Lily Savage debuted in 1978. 
a single mother and sometime prostitute in a wig the size of the shard, a character based loosely on his beloved aunt. 3. When O'Grady was compering at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, his dressing-room became a sort of confessional booth for his fellow performers. Boys would sit at Lily's feet and talk about pain. These were the aides, years when he was seeing his friends turn into ghosts. An ex-altar boy, O'Grady lit candles for the dead. By the nineties it must have felt like he was exiting a burning building. Visiting his friend Chrissy in hospital, Later, he'd haul Lily's slap into the hospice to make Chrissy up for the coffin. He bumped into a fan dancer he knew from the clubs. This boy told him fans weren't fashionable any more. And I said, what is? And he said, dying. When Lily was nominated for a Perrier Award in 1991, she graduated to telly, taking over from Paula Yates on The Big Breakfast. At the time, the writer Adam Mars-Jones said Paul O'Grady had found a way of talking about deprivation through the excesses of Lily's character. He is obsessed with the world as it is, but maybe he can only do this by stepping outside himself and into Lily Savage. This was his fourth life, one in the spotlight, and on the back of a thriving career in white stilettos, for a while Lily was the legs of pretty Polly, O'Grady found a side hustle playing himself. In 2000 he began to front primetime documentaries focusing on his love of animals, and became so mainstream that as well as tea-time chat shows he was given a program on Radio 2. Four years later the character of Lily was retired to a convent in Brittany, and he started playing Paul O'Grady full-time. In this, his fifth life, he started writing it all down, and seemingly never stopped. The fourth volume of his memoirs, all have been bestsellers, ends as today's career begins. And in the cracks between are enough stories to cobble together at least another life or three. Memories of the prostitutes he knew who lived on the ships in Liverpool, of Jimmy Savile visiting the children's home he worked at, of his two major heart attacks, and the death in 2005 two days before O'Grady's fiftieth birthday, of his long-term manager and boyfriend, Brendan Murphy, from brain cancer. Since quitting Lily and picking up a BAFTA and an MBE, O'Grady has become something of a national treasure. He wrinkles his nose. Oh, what a terrible phrase. That wasn't planned. One day I thought, I can't do this anymore. I hated putting makeup on. Lipstick disgusts me. But mainly I hated that I could never say exactly what I felt. It always had to be warped through Lily. So I was like a boil ready to burst. Writing became an obsession. Telly or radio on, full belt. I write at night when the dogs are asleep. Though two of them are epileptic, so I might have to stop for the fit. Although he tells his life story like a comedy routine, it's pitted with melancholy and pauses at the odd story about one of his six pet pigs. We're meeting to talk about Blind Date, the show fronted by Cella Black for almost two decades. When Channel 5 first approached him, he said no immediately. It was synonymous with hair, wasn't it? They'd been best friends. O'Grady read the eulogy at her funeral, including a story about Cilla getting wedged in a window, having lost her keys. When the neighbours came out, she shouted, Surprise, surprise! Cilla's son made him change his mind, saying he was the only replacement she'd approve of. Still, 
when we did the first recording, it felt wrong. I heard the music, and it felt like it shouldn't be me. He sighs at the memory of Scylla. After Bobby, Willis, her husband, died, she said she'd been sent a guardian angel, except with two hooves and a tail. Oh, I miss her. We'd speak every day and go away together three times a year. I never liked Barbados. Never told her that, just went to be with her. Paps everywhere, taking the most terrible photos of us coming out of supermarkets. She was so funny, though. I'd be self-harming to try and stop laughing. When he's talking about somebody he has lost, he looks away, out towards the traffic. Blind date in an age of Tinder is a confusing proposition. I know, the contestants. Physically, they've got their act together. He mimes a cheery kind of swagger. But mentally, they haven't. People today are scared of relationships. They're being hurt. He's been with his partner, a former ballet dancer, since 2006. They met through Murphy, who he was with for 25 years. Murphy and I used to fight. Proper punch-ups. We'd fight in the green room of the BBC. And that was love. When I was ill, I wasn't bothered about myself. I was upset at what he was going through. Then, later, nursing him, seeing such a strong man lose the power of speech. He died in six weeks. The worst weeks of my life. He touches Murphy's cladder ring on his wedding finger. And caring for him was so... frustrating. I went into the hospital at one point and offered a hundred pounds for a urine bottle, but they couldn't give me one. Not a pot to piss in. That's why I'm so obsessed with carers. He just left to get on with it. The isolation, the loneliness, the fear... It does permanent damage. His eyes cloud slightly. I went quieter after Murphy died. There is a sort of matter-of-fact sadness to O'Grady, one informed by decades of caring. It's a skill he learned in childhood, where he was milking cows by the age of six. It feels as though it's the warmth and comedy the glorious banter he was surrounded with as a boy that meant he was able to deal with so much death and still keep on living well. Friends die. You get on with it. I didn't take time for myself, no. Counselling always seemed like a sign of weakness. Even after working in social services? My training showed me such death and devastation. When you talk to someone who's homeless, they'll tell you. Last year I had a house, a family. And yet today they're anonymous and it could happen to us, to me. Although it wouldn't be such a bad lot, the way he tells it, to be packed off back to Birkenhead, a place he uses as a fond punchline. That's because it's important to talk about class. Back then, everything was in black and white. When we finally got a colour telly, my mum wouldn't let us watch old films in case the neighbours sold and thought we still had an old TV. He describes himself as a person who will never trust a microwave. If he can't boil in it, He's not interested. We don't go to doctors in my family because we don't want to make a fuss. So my sister's in hospital at the moment with fluid on her heart and lungs. We were cursed in our family with hearts. He puts his head to the side like one of his pet owls, the one responsible for pecking him affectionately until he bleeds. He's on blood thinners now since the heart attacks. When I was in hospital in intensive care, they wheeled in the telly and I was on the news. I said to them, Have I died? O'Grady is a rare thing on British TV, a mainstream entertainer who is vocal about his politics. More than vocal, livid. I loathe Cameron, he said once. I loathe Osborne. 
I'd like to see their heads on spikes on Tower Bridge. He is no less angry today. This government cutting disability benefits, it's criminal. I know from being in social services myself how important that £30 is. Working for Camden Council in the 70s, he saw the effect of cuts up close, and you never finish the job. You go back after work with your two-bar fire. It should have got better, but it's got worse, much worse. We don't respect the elderly, and we don't look after the disabled. We pretend to. Carers are the neglected souls. We leave them alone. His voice rises to an almost lily level, an angry boom. I remember going in to do respite care for a man with Alzheimer's while his wife took a break. He'd get me in a headlock when I'd put his dinner down, and later he'd have lucid moments which were heartbreaking because then he'd apologise. Suddenly O'Grady cackles. I'd sleep next to his bed, and one night I woke up warm because he was weeing on me. Are you nervous going on stage, they used to say. Are you joking? I was a care worker in Camden Town. This is nothing. I have a flash of O'Grady and his six pigs campaigning through Tory Kent, neighbours ducking behind the sofa as he approaches. Do you know where I hate? he asks suddenly. I hate this keep calm and carry on business. Why? I'm scared for the future. I'm scared of global warming. I'm scared for me grandkids. I'm scared there'll be no elephants in eight years. I'm worried about becoming an isolated island when we come out of the EU. I've stopped watching the news. I can't see any more kids being blown up in Syria. A pause. I mean, I watch Meridian tonight, of course, because that's fabulous. A sip of tea. But if you say anything about Brexit today, people tell you you're a traitor. Those that didn't vote for it are meant to just shut up. No, I like to tackle things. Don't tell me to keep calm. A prim snort. He raises his chin now, a gesture of grand defiance, which is basically the pose he's struck his whole career. He was banned from the one show after describing the stars of documentary series Benefits Street as sacrificial lambs. He quit his talk show, saying the celebrities became so dull they were like relatives you felt obliged to visit. In less public gestures of defiance, he refused to wear a mask and gloves when visiting the AIDS wards. He contextualises the changes he's seen through a dark lens of illness. Same-sex marriage is great because of the security it gives. In the AIDS period, families who'd never come near their son would be in to clear the flat and throw out the partner of twenty years. There was so much fear. Hospitals made it look like a crime scene in the sun with that vile Kelvin Mackenzie whipping up hatred. His lips curl, as if just saying his name tastes bitter. People say it was like a war, but it was worse. In a war there's a common bond, but with AIDS you couldn't tell someone on the bus you were going to meet a friend in hospital. The bus would empty. He refuses to judge the younger, gay generation for the hedonism he now hears about second-hand. The drugs. The sex. I admire the younger gays now. They're far more confident and canny than we were. Gay boys today choose to forget about those days and move on, and I don't blame them. My auntie used to say, remember the past, but don't live in it. Except for me, everything seems rosier in retrospect. The Vauxhall Tavern was our village hall. With all the weddings and deaths, that implies. Now it's all casual sex on apps, which means you miss out on the social side of the scene. 
It wasn't about taking drugs off the internet and going for a fortnight. It was a couple of pints of cider and a dance. It sounds like the blind date daters, with LGBT contestants appearing for the first time, could learn a lot from their host. God, don't look at me as a role model. Look at me as a warning. He leans back in his chair, and for a second I see Savage. Me? I'm just the burnt-out wreck of a once-glorious disco. That was Paul O'Grady, Don't Tell Me to Keep Calm and Carry On, by Eva Wiseman. Read by Mark Elstop. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, Zoe Williams thought we created something beautiful in the 90s with the notion that perhaps nobody was any good at fidelity or washing up. But now, the men are trash narrative has reared its head again. How can we banish it for good, she wonders. Read by Serena Manteghi. My millennial friend was explaining the trajectory of the men are trash narrative. It fell out of fashion for a bit, but now it's very much back. The proposition, in a nutshell, is that men are trash. It's a narrative because it's 2023 and everything is. There were boomers round the table as well. I know, I know. It sounds like an event I've made up, but what can I say? I run a very broad friend church, generation-wise. Well, obviously, said one, that's because men are trash. No, no, said another 60-plus, who is known for her interjections of nuance. Men aren't trash, it's just that women are more interesting. Tiny point of clarification. All these people are married and their husbands were right there. Shh, shh, ladies, they can hear you, I said, like a true Gen X. No, it's true, said a millennial guy. We probably don't do as much work on ourselves. Well, I'm not trash, said a boomer man mildly, but her first husband was absolute garbage. All my intel on the ways in which men might be trash is passé, dating from the earliest days of online romance, 
when men invented ghosting and diffidence and talking too much about transport and not enough about their feelings. Now, apparently, their crimes are love-bombing and calling too often and treating dates like unpaid therapists. But what's a therapist but a paid friend, I wanted to know. Isn't that just being treated like a friend? No. I have misunderstood therapy, friendship, men and dating, it transpires. It's true that I've done very little work on myself. Feminism has known its rifts, and whether they're about sex work or porn or trans rights, they all trace back to the same root. Is there some trait of violence that is innate to all men? Or is that a bit of a dicey extrapolation to make from the fact of male violence? Sorry, I could have put that a bit more simply. This is the all men are rapists narrative. It reminds me a bit of the English Civil War and how you can still guess whether a constituency will go Labour or Conservative if you know whether it was Roundhead or Cavalier. I can say with relative certainty that every feminist who was sex positive in the 90s is a trans ally now. Why we're all so quiet about it is a question for another day. But women talking is a different story, not interchangeable with feminism. This is just shooting the breeze. It's not about the patriarchy or structural violence, it's just about men and whether they're trash or not. I remember the 80s, my mum sitting in clouds of silk-cut smoke with her single mother friends, describing the sheer uselessness of men. Bad at fidelity, bad at sex, bad at washing up, bad at communicating. And some of those women weren't even single. They had husbands, who may have been bad at almost everything, but they were incredibly good at hiding. I really thought we'd created something beautiful in the 90s. Something like a revolution. What if neither gender is the victim of the other, and true emancipation means being able to step out of the confines of essentialism? What if men are great? What if women are also trash? What if nobody's any good at fidelity or washing up? I thought we'd turned the world on its head and it would never be the same. That lasted about five minutes. I missed all the women talking memos in the 2000s and I have no idea whether men were trash then. I had two small children and the ideal domestic scenario for that is a five-way partnership of completely self-sacrificing adults who are never tired. Maybe two are robots? Failing that, one man is definitely better than none. By the 2010s, mainly because of Tinder, it seems, men were trash again. The most sought-after 10% were all acting like James Bond, and the other 90% were watching Pay Gap Truthers on YouTube. Truthfully, the men are not trash narrative is just better for everyone concerned. But someone else will have to remake the 90s revolution. I have a son now, and mothers of sons are notoriously untrustworthy on this terrain. That was The Men Are Trash Narrative is back. But what if women are also trash? By Zoe Williams. Read by Serena Mantegi. Before you go, 
we wanted to tell you about our latest offer. This year, as part of the Guardian's partnership with Glastonbury Festival, we've got 10 pairs of tickets to give away free to worthy winners. If you know someone who deserves a chance to experience the world's best festival, visit theguardian.com forward slash worthy dash winners to nominate them for a weekend of arts, culture and music. Make sure to cast your nominations by Saturday the 1st of April. Only UK residents who are 18 and over can apply. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Mark Elstob and Serena Mategi and presented by me, Savannah Oyewade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.